Turn with me to Titus chapter 2. That's where we've been. We've been teaching through the pastoral epistles, so we've gotten through Titus chapter 2. So that's like 6 and 4, that's 10 chapters in Timothy and Timothy, and now two more, so now we're like into the 12th chapter of the pastoral epistles. And one of the things we have seen is that there's a lot more that goes on behind the scenes of ministry than just come as you are and God loves you and he has a wonderful dream for you. No, this is a lot more than that. We're seeing that there's a lot of nitty-gritty battle strategy behind the scenes, that ministers have a lot of attacks, they need encouragement, that there's a lot of betrayal that goes on behind the scenes, and typically the average sheep on a Sunday morning will never have a clue or even scratch the surface of what goes on. You know, religious people have one set of expectations on their parishioner or their, their, uh, their parson, their preacher, and then God has a totally different set of expectations and never the twain do meet. And honestly, pastoring is a full-time job. You never turn it off. And if you're supernatural, it never shuts off. You could be somewhere on vacation and all of a sudden out of nowhere have a burden for a family and you end up laying on the beach praying in tongues for 20 minutes trying to prevent something and then you're calling an elder to ask them what's going on. Or even I've been in Africa many times and the Lord deal with me about sheep. We're just seeing a lot of stuff behind the scenes here. And sadly enough, if you have been one of the folks who unfortunately has been addicted or nursed on Christian television for the last 30 years, your understanding of what the kingdom is is very perverse. Because Christian television for the last 30 years is a joke. Nobody on Christian television, with the exception of maybe Billy Graham and Reinhard Bonnke, will be remembered for much of anything. They will not go down as great revivalists. They will not go down as great pioneers. They will go down as charlatans and... They even cause the term televangelist to be a pejorative online on point with like used car salesmen. If you want to insult me, call me a televangelist and we'll fight. <laughs> I will honorably be called, respectfully called a pastor, but I don't want to be called a televangelist any more than you want to be called a lawyer, a politician, or a used car salesman. So there's a lot more to ministry than just Christian television. And again, if you've been one to feed on that for the last 30 years, what you understand about the kingdom is very skewed, and uh, it, you should make up for lost time and say, show me the reality, because what has been presented since the 90s, which is when I started watching it, is not reality at all. Not reality at all. Not reality at all. Even what is megachurch ministry is not reality at all. The average American church is still only about 80 people. That's the median. That's the average size of the typical American church. So to see a church of 5,000, that's not reality. And who, when people die in that church, who buries them? Who knows them? They don't even know the people they sit by in the megaplex. So we're looking at the reality of ministry here. And we're in the epistle of Titus written by the apostle Paul to one of his sons in the faith, a young man named Titus. And he left him in the Crete, the nation of Crete, which is an island nation. Let's see this first picture. I just thought I'd show you where it is for geography's sake. Here is a map of Crete. Crete is at the bottom. You see Greece there. Above Greece is Albania. To the east of Greece, there is Turkey or the western uh, border of Turkey. And there you see the Aegean Sea, the Ionian Sea. And so there's Crete at the bottom. That's the island nation of Crete. Um, Acts 27 talks about Paul and the prison ship he's on having to crash land, and not crash land, but take harbor there at Crete. And it says, and after a long time being at Crete, it's still too dangerous to weather. This is when they assume, some theologians and historians, they assume this is when Paul would have begun to pioneer an apostolic work on Crete. You would have weathered or wintered in the port for several months. A good apostle can spring up a couple churches in a few months, especially if he's given liberty to travel. This also might have been about the time, Acts 27, when Paul left Titus there. Because again, you got a couple months, you're not just going to sit on that boat. People are coming and going. Uh, and this is all part of ancient um, mariner culture. So he tells them in chapter 1, this is what we looked at last week, for this reason I left you in Crete that you might set in order that which is lacking is to ordain elders in every city. For, and then he goes on to give the criteria. The other thing we wanted to focus on uh, in understanding the big context here, because this becomes a major theme of chapter 2, is Titus 1, verse 12 says, one of themselves, even a prophet of their own, and that's the gr Greek philosopher from Kenosis, uh, Epimenides, 6th century B.C. 
he said, uh, the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and slow bellies. Now, the actual quote from Epimenides is, uh, all Cretans are liars. And this becomes what's called the Epimenides paradox or a logic or a paradox of self-reference. Because if all Cretans are liars and Epimenides is a Cretan, then Epimenides is a liar and all Cretans are not liars. So that's why it's called a logic paradox, a paradox of self-reference, um, the Epimenides paradox. And there's philosophers have debated this and people get their PhDs in it trying to resolve it. But what I find interesting is that he is quoting Epimenides from 600 years prior, which means for 600 years, the culture of Crete has not changed. It's not improved, not for all the Greek philosophy, not for all the Roman rule. It's still the same. But then by the Holy Ghost, Paul adds two more stereotypes, two more references. All Cretans, or the Cretans are always, always. That feels a little intense. Always liars. That's Epimenides' quote. Evil beasts, slow bellies. Or all Cretans are liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Um, we have to understand how wicked the island of Crete was in this era. And they were a rapacious group, island nation of rapscallions. In Greek literature, there was a, a verb or an adjective developed that was called to Cretanize. So, so disreputable was this island nation of people that their own identity became a pejorative, to Cretanize. That became an expression that meant to lie and to cheat. Now, that's what the Greeks said of them. That's what the Mediterranean nation said of them. To, to be Cretanized was to be lied to or cheated, all referencing their notorious culture. Now, this is a stereotype that then was immortalized as a figure of speech. We do the same thing today, but it's called racism. Because you can't call someone an Indian giver. Because that's racist. Or is it a play on a stereotype? And you definitely can't say I got gypped. Because that's a reference to the gypsies who are held in reputation for ripping you off. And you can't say I went to the market and Jewed them down. But these are all examples of to be Cretanized. A culture held in reputation so well, so established that then you use their cultural identity to explain a behavior. Now, it would almost seem like only white people have done this the way academics and the media portray our privilege. So much that now even the word gypsy is considered a racial slur. But Tyson Fury says, I'm the gypsy king. If you've got a problem with me calling myself a gypsy, we'll fight. Tyson Fury is a heavyweight champion of the world right now. Uh, he is a gypsy. He's born to the, the, the technical term is Irish traveler. The racial slur is pikey. And I was in Ireland, and nobody in Ireland cares for the Irish travelers. And their reputation is still the same. They will rip you off. That's their reputation. So that's a different kind of gypsy than the Romanian gypsies. But, you know, the, the whites in Europe don't want anybody to be called anything because I guess they have white guilt. I don't have white guilt. I feel guilty for nothing but sin. And then when I sin, I repent to the person, not the people, the person I sinned against and to my God. So we can't use to get gypped. We can't use Jew you down because this is the same as to Cretanize, but that was the reputation. But I want you to see that by the Holy Ghost, God says the same thing. The Cretans are liars. That's not racist. That's a cultural acknowledgement. If anything, it's being a culturalist. It's seeing something that defines a culture and calling it sin. And a lot of what gets done in our nation for as diverse as we are ethnically we're so afraid of calling out sin that a culture has embraced because we might be labeled a racist by the ignoramus 
who's been taught to worship at the altar of microaggression. So I just want you to know by today's academic and Generation Z standard, God is a racist because he, by the Holy Ghost, God Almighty is the Holy Ghost, through the Apostle Paul said, the Cretans who Cretanize people, they're liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And then Paul says, this witness is true. So that makes Paul the racist. But of course he's not. He's speaking by the Holy Ghost because he has a heart for a people who are so backwards they don't know their left hand from their right, like most cultures in our nation today. And where our great sin is, we defend our color rather than judging our culture. And you're too ignorant to separate the sinfulness of your culture from the color of your skin. And we care nothing about the color of your skin, but your culture is killing your people. And I think the devil likes you conflating the two because then you don't have to take any responsibility for going to hell. Amen. Pretty good preaching. I haven't even got to the lazy fatties yet. That's coming like a freight train. So the inverse of this figure of speech being immortalized is uh, where literary figures are then raised as racial pejoratives, kind of like Uncle Tom, which even when Harriet Beecher Stowe was alive, she wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin. She was a Methodist minister's daughter. It was made into a play very quickly. Um, and it was probably one of the greatest works of anti-slavery literature. The term Uncle Tom was then used as a racial pejorative to, to denigrate blacks who were not up in arms. So they were called Uncle Toms. To this day, that term is still used by blacks against blacks to mock them and ridicule them, usually by morons who've never read Uncle Tom's Cabin. So just to be fair, I think you can use the term if you've actually read the book. But because most of these guys aren't literate, they're not going to read that book. Also, the term Shylock. Anybody ever heard the term Shylock? That's a Jewish slur. But it's taken from a Shakespeare work, The Merchant of Venice. The bad guy in it is Shylock. His name is Shylock, and he was a Jewish, very, very cutthroat um, Jewish merchant who extracted money. So that becomes, it's a literary figure, Shylock, like Uncle Tom. His name is Shylock, and that's become a racial slur now. You don't use it much around here because we don't have a Jewish population to which white trash would practice anti-Semitism on. No, we save that for the academics. Or the other one from Uncle Tom's Cabin is Sambo. He had two slaves in Uncle Tom's Cabin, Tom's Cabin Sambo and Quimbo. And they, they were basically, they did the dirty work for the evil slave master, the, the ruthless slave master, we should say, at the end of Uncle Tom's Cabin. So Sambo and Quimbo have become kind of lesser known literary pejoratives uh, for black folks. Actually, uh, what election was it? I think it was Bush's second election. I saw a Democrat in Virginia attack his Democratic op opposition, and he said all he has is a bunch of Sambos working for him. And I knew the slur because I'm literate. But nobody picked up on the slur. And I was like, ooh, a Democrat calling other Democrats a bunch of Sambos? Whew. Well, at least I know that man's educated and well-read. But, uh, yeah, anyway, God's calling these Cretans Cretans. And it's not racism. It's an acknowledgement of their cultural depravity. And again, I want to reiterate to you, most of what we call racism in our country today is not racism at all. It's an acknowledgement of a perversion in a group of people's culture. Amen. And I wish we could mature to that level where we could distinguish between color and cultural behavior. Instead of letting everybody lump everyone together and saying, well, because you said all Asians are good at math, that's a racial stereotype. Or because you say all whites are good at racism, or I don't know what even whites are claimed to be good at anymore, except just rolling over and taking it to the chin. All right. God wanted this gospel to change the character and culture of the Cretan people. It's what he's still trying to accomplish in our lives today. He's still trying to get this gospel in our lives to change the hills and hollers of Middle Tennessee, to change the inner city of Baltimore and Atlanta, to change the islands of the Bahamas. He's wanting the gospel to change 
Asia and Africa and Central and South America and the Slavics of Europe. He's wanting this gospel to change us, but we seem to be pretty resistant to it. And so the Cretans are called out. And I do find it interesting. We don't really see, other than Corinth, we don't see an isolated culture so severely nailed anywhere in the epistles, except for maybe Jesus and the Jews. We don't really see a, a culture so targeted for their egregious cultural reputation. And this is where, if we're going to be mature Christians, we're, this is a very diverse church. Very few folks in this church are homegrown in Middle Tennessee. So you're bringing something different to this region, and I think it's great because this region needs all the help it can get. When I took over this church, I used to walk around, and I realized this region needs an enema and needs to be severely flushed out. It's backed up, and plugged up, full of itself. And God's adding people here to change it. But wherever you do come from has a culture that is disreputable and deplorable. And your job as a believer is to look at where you come from with open, honest, biblical judgment and say, I'm thankful for where I was raised, but not for exactly everything that I was given. And you be able to, with honesty and open judgment, judge how you were raised or what culture you were given, whether in the mansions of Bel Air, the inner city of Chicago, or the hood of Birmingham, or the trailer park of whatever, or the islands or the bush. Every culture has its strengths, and every culture helps send people to hell. God is wanting this gospel to change all of us to the kingdom's culture, and you have to be able to be honest enough to recognize where you still defend yourself because your color and your culture is still your favorite. And that's a prejudice that's in every human. Racism has nothing to do with minority status at all. Racism and prejudice has everything to do with a wicked heart of prideful self-indulgence and narcissism. So the reputation of the Cretans for 600 plus years is that they were liars. And the Holy Ghost goes on to acknowledge they've added a couple others. They are evil beasts. And then they are uh, slow bellies. Now, liars refers to their ethic. They have no ethics. Think about a whole island nation who has no ethics. Can they even trust each other? So they're cutthroat. They're always afraid they're going to be duped or mistreated. So now you have a kind of produces a self-suspicion, the self-loathing. Nobody trusts anybody. And evil beasts, that talks about their violent demeanor. Probably that's based on, ain't nobody going to do me wrong. Ain't nobody going to do me wrong. Ain't nobody going to do me wrong. You got to be careful when you're, the heartbeat of your existence is you're worried about somebody going to do you wrong. If you live a day, somebody's going to do you wrong. If you live a week, someone's going to manipulate you. But if you know that they're manipulating you, they're not manipulating you. So just let them play that little game in their head and you'll be all right. But you got to stop trying to defend yourself. You got to stop being so paranoid. Somebody's going to do you wrong. If you're going to live, you're going to get done wrong. And that's why we forgive and are the bigger person. And then slow bellies, that deals with their appetites. So there's, this is their three, their three ethics, their three reputations, their three traits. I taught something similar to this at Pastor Caleb's church, either when we first put you guys in or at your one-year anniversary. So I asked Sparta, what, what are Spartans known for? What's your number one trait? And I, <laughs> I thought I knew what they were going to say. And they all yelled at me, murder. And I said, what? Oh, yeah, hey, Miss Sandra. Oh, murder. Yeah, we're known for murder. They were kind of proud of it. And then come to find out the, the two places in the country you can murder and never get caught are Chicago and Sparta. More unsolved murders in Sparta per capita than any place in the country except Chicago. And that's mafia territory. Is that right? And the Lord has even had Pastor Caleb and Miss Tiffany teach on how religiosity feeds the spirit of murder in Sparta because if any man hates his brother, he's a murderer. And that's just 15 minutes down the road. You think where you come from has problems when they all know our, our yeah, heaven knows us as a bunch of toothless murderers. <laughs> that's me playing to a white stereotype. We're not, they don't even play hockey down there and they're still missing teeth. It's another white stereotype. 
I'm an equal opportunity offender. By now you should know that and should have thicker skin. Quit being like your upbringing that has ruined you. So let me ask you this, because I want to kind of, this is a shorter chapter and we're going to have to hit some stuff here quickly, but if God can judge Crete and say, these are the reputation they're known by. And the Holy Ghost through Paul says, this is true. The solution is not hug them and tell them how God loves them. The solution is therefore rebuke them sharply that they might be sound in the faith. Then what, what do you think America? Let, let's talk about this real briefly here. What, what's, what are our top three reputations? Sinful. Now, I'm sure Crete had maybe some positive. They, obviously, they're an island nation, so they were probably good maritime uh, sailors. Uh, but Sinfully, what, what do you think are, what would be our number one na- national sinful reputation? Fraud? Pride, yeah. Obesity. What's that? Sexual perversion. Uh, so my thought is, and I've, I've, I left these blank on my notes, my first thought is pride, this, this fierce independence. We'll call it fierce independence. You're not going to tell me what to do. So we'll just call it, I think that's pride, fierce. Pride has a lot of different flavors. We'll call this fierce independence. Because even Christians are that way. Who you, you, they're trying to tell you what to do. That's a cult. Now that's a cop out for you. That doctor can tell you what to do and you'll worship at his feet. Fierce independence. All right, sexual perversion. I think that's another one. Our greatest export, Mr. Gary taught us when he did a discipleship a couple years ago. America's number one financial export is pornography. How many porn movies a week, Gary? Do you remember? 400? Hollywood cranks out 400 new porn movies a week in the porn industry in California. So I think we could say sexual perversion. I've heard missionaries say they don't deal, men say they don't deal with sexual lust when they're on the mission field, but the second their plane touches down in America, all of a sudden they're battling lust like they've never, they hadn't battled in months. That's a spirit in our land. Sexual, we'll just say sexual deviance. And of course, now we expand that beyond just porn to and heterosexual perversion to, you know, honestly, anything goes. I think even Sodom and Gomorrah would judge us and go, ooh, what? What's the third one? Someone said obesity. What, what's, maybe we need to generalize something. What's that? Gluttony, selfishness. Greed, we, we might say unbridled, uh, uh, no restraint. I think, I think we could summarize greed, selfishness, because that's all about obviously self. Greed, gluttony, that would be no restraint. Because I, I think we acknowledge we don't know how to regulate anything. We don't do anything in moderation. We don't just get one tattoo, we get a hundred. We don't just get one stud, we find new flaps. We don't just watch an episode. We stream the whole series, all seven seasons. That was my weekend. We don't just do coffee. We do $15 lattes. I mean, we, this is our nation. We don't just do dinner. We do buffets. The Europeans come here, <laughs> and one of their first comments is, the portions. Oh, my goodness, the portions. Oh, this is a buffet. You get seven more plates that big if you want. So we'll say... No restraint. But I think that also goes back to number one, which is fierce independence. Who are you to get in my way? Which is what we talked about Sunday morning, selfism and emotivism, which says, uh, which redefines love. And it says love is, is any emotion that lets me do what I want, want, want and won't get in my way. The modern definition of love is if you get in my way, you don't love me. If you get in the way of me and my pride, me and my pleasure, me and what makes me feel good, even if it's crack, even if it's morphine, even if it's amputating my legs and my breasts, if you get in the way of me and that, then you don't really love me. That's emotivism. The emotions are the strongest guide that people have today. And the Bible condemns that because the heart is desperately wicked and curably sick. Well, well, that just hurts me. Well, it didn't hurt everybody. So you're the odd man out. So what's your problem? So we'll say no restraint. How about what three traits would you say define the upper Cumberland? So let's go not just the U.S. now, not just the West or North America, not just the U.S. How about not just Tennessee, but the upper Cumberland? Some of us who've lived here 
Usually it takes an outsider to come in here and pick up on it because when you're born here, you just can't smell it. It's like smelling morning breath. You can't do it, but everybody in your household tells you that's wretched. You've been kissing a donkey? Eating, you kiss on the dog after ate a dead possum? Like, what is, how, does that, how does your breath smell that bad? So my first thought is poverty. It's a poverty mindset. It's just backwards. It's just poverty riddled. Poverty. And that's not a dollar amount. Poverty mindset. That's, this is the mindset that says, good enough's good enough, leave me alone. You keep your nose and your holler, I'll keep my nose and my holler, never the twain shall meet. Who are you to judge me? I won't judge you. You can just go over there and I'll just stay over here. And you can see how geography and history has created that culture. Now you fast forward it and you put it through a couple filters called the internet and maybe running water and uh, we have some kind of new amalgamation. <laughs> Poverty mindset, what else? Religion, religiosity, because we are fiercely religious. I don't think we can avoid that. Religiosity. And uh, maybe a third one, because I would say poverty produces a lot of stuff. Poverty and religion tend to go hand in hand. Addiction, yeah, that's another one, because now you're trying to escape poverty, and you're also trying to find some relief from religion. That, this is a newer thing. The addictive thing wasn't here 50 years ago. It's a new demon that has moved in. It's a new issue. Uh, you might could say moonshine did its role. I've been in many caves around here where we find remnants of old uh, prohibition era moonshine stills. I mean, that's a pretty regular thing to find around here. Uh, that doesn't mean everybody was drinking uh, white lightning. <laughs> I did have a boss who had some in college, and I, so I experimented with it. I didn't drink it. I did set it on fire, and it... <laughs> I had always heard real moonshine, you can shake it up and it beads. The higher the proof, it'll bead up, and it did. I said, so this must be the stuff. You know, you smell it, and it opens your sinuses into last week. <laughs> and you can smell what you had last week. And then I remember, this is watching Dukes of Hazard. <laughs> that it should be highly flammable. I mean, most of my science comes from Dukes of Hazard. So, as does Frank's, because Frank loves the Dukes of Hazard more than me. He's black. That's cultural appropriation. I don't appreciate you loving the Dukes of Hazard. <laughs> that you can soak a rag in it and it will ignite. And it does like that. So a boss of mine had it. I'm not sure he appreciated me kind of burning some of it, but addiction. That would be a new stronghold in our region. And it certainly is killing us literally and ruining families. And uh, I think it is interesting, different cultures find themselves bound to different drugs. You don't find the hillbillies of our region on crack, you find them on meth. And you don't go to the inner cities and find methamphetamines or Dilatas, you find them on crack or cocaine or weed. It's interesting, there just seems to be different kinds of bondage, Now I'm sure there's exceptions, but culture pioneers different things differently. All right, so... That's their testimony. Paul says, rebuke them sharply. This is how we solve any issue. You don't hug them out of it. Jesus Christ said, as many as I love, I rebuke. So we cannot use the hippie definition of love to try to pastor God's people or to change a region. It has to be the biblical flavor of love and not all love hugs and buys toys. Some love rebukes. Don't forget the exhortation that speaketh unto us as unto children. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither faintness without rebuke of him. For whom the Lord loves, he scourges as any son he receives. So the solution is a harsh rebuke. You don't hug somebody out of addiction. You rebuke them out of it and say, this is going to kill you. How would you have me do your funeral? Let's write it together because I feel like it's coming soon and you're going to expect me to say something nice about you and I don't have much to say right now. He goes on to say that these folks who are kind of promoting some of this, that they are impure, abominable, disobedient, and reprobate. Chapter 2, verse 1 is where we want to pick up. We burned a lot of time reviewing. So Paul now shifts his focus to Timothy, and he says, Speak thou the things which become sound doctrine, because that's how you're going to fix any cultural sinkhole. Fix the things that are broken. Wholesome doctrine. Things that become sound doctrine or wholesome doctrine. Now, uh, let's show you this next slide. This is the only la this last one I've got. I told you 
this definition. The Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies, bad actors, lazy fatties. You thought I was making it up because it sounds like something I would say. But this is what is that? The Klingsman, uh, Klingsensmith, Klingsensmith's def, uh, translation. He calls it lazy fatties. I know nothing about him, but this is in one of my massive commentaries and lexicons. When, when you have majority culture defining the church, your pastoring and your doctrine is going to have to lean against it. So we said that ethically they're liars. Uh, we said socially they're evil beasts, which means they're just fierce. And then concerning their appetites, which is one of America's issues, they have no restraint. So what we're going to see, as now Paul tells Timothy, this is how you make disciples out of those Cretans. And you're going to see over and over again, the characteristics he emphasizes are the ones that are combat, well, will combat the threefold nature of the Cretans that is currently in existence. Every pastor or missionary, when he moves into a region, he inherits a culture that's half damnable. He's not going to emphasize that which is good. It's already there. He's going to have to lean against and plow out the rocks that are ruining the culture. That's what Paul does here. We saw it in the requirements for elders. He said that the children of an elder cannot be accused of riot or unruly. That's the reputation of Crete. They're riotous and unruly. And if it's in the kids, then it means the gospel is not even changing anything at home. So you can't use that man. Understand me, your kids can disqualify you. Because if God can't trust you with your kids, he's not going to give you any of his. So let's look at this. We're going to go word by word here. We're going to see how Paul now tells Timothy, or excuse me, Titus, work on these traits to produce a strong church. This has kind of got the Cretans in focus. We said we have sexual issues in our nation. We also said we've got this fierce independence. That feeds a lot of our stuff. It makes pastoring very difficult because folks want to say, well, you don't know what you're talking about. Who are you to tell me what to do? I'm nobody, I guess. Go, fine, change, another, change churches again. Every one of us that was born in this nation, you have fierce independence coursing through your veins. And that's why we emphasize servanthood, submission. That's why we bristle against submission. Africans don't struggle with submission. Their culture is not one of fierce independence. They haven't inherited a chieftain culture, a tribalistic culture where you have a chief. It's easy for them to submit to the bishop and the overseer. Not in America. We were birth shaking our fist at the Brits, willing to die. Our declaration, I mean, the only, I mean, our founding article is the declaration of Go jump off a cliff, moron. <laughs> That's our founding document, the Declaration of Independence. I'm not against it. I'm thankful for it. But when it hurts you spiritually, I curse it to hell because we're still called to be slaves in this kingdom. So let's look real quick. I'm going to read it, then we're going to go back word by word. We're going to move quickly for time's sake. This is what becomes sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is not just what you think. Sound doctrine is what you live. If you think it, but don't live it, you don't believe it. So sound doctrine, we want to understand it's a lifestyle. So that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, and charity and patience. That's verse 2. That gives us six traits for mature senior men. Let's break those down real quick. It's interesting to see. Number one is sober or nephileos, and that means temperate, restraint, and moderate in all things. So the very first characteristic Paul once developed in the men of Crete lays and leans against all three of their wicked reputations. Self-control. When you are self-controlled, you don't lie. When you're self-controlled, you're not an evil beast. When you're self-controlled, you're not a lazy fatty. That's a harsh term, but it's not my words. Just repeating them. We'll say a lazy glutton. Moderation in all things. Temperance. Restraint. Number two, grave. That means worthy of respect. Obviously, if there's a current Greek term called to cretinize, then the whole nation is disrespected. And it isn't racial at all. It's rep reputation-based. They don't care what color they are. It's reputation-based. 
They don't call them Cretans because they're a different color and olive complected because it's the Mediterranean. They call them Cretans because they're liars and thieves. I wish we could get that through our thick skull. The reputation is based on culture and behavior, not skin condition. So stupid to me. But if I can claim racism, then I don't have to take responsibility for my shortcomings, my failures, or my go nowhereism. It's their fault. Third word is temperate in the King James. That is sophron, and that means self-controlled and sober-minded. Three out of the two words, or two out of three words, are both almost synonyms. Self-controlled, self-restraint. This one, though, adds the element of sober-minded. So self-control in your thoughts, which means... Everybody's going to have to get a control of their emotions, their fears. This is what's required of holy men, no matter where you are, especially in the island of Crete. Then he says, I want them sound in their faith, sound in their love, sound in their patience. The word sound means free from contamination. So he wants their faith free from contaminants. He wants their love free from contaminants. He wants their patience free from contaminants. That patience is endurance or fortitude. Six characteristics right out of the gate in one verse that Paul says, if you're going to change the island of Crete, this is how you do it. And two out of these six characteristics have to do with self-control because the biggest problem Crete has is no restraint, which we all just summarized is our nation's reputation as well. No self-control. And this is said of older men because they've walked with God longer and therefore should have more fruit. Now, if you're not careful, you'll mistake old for experience. And you'll, you'll, you'll conflate old with qualified. Old doesn't mean you're qualified. Old just means you're old. Old doesn't mean mature. Old just means you're old. Our children look up to us and think because we're older, we're more mature. But about the time they're 11, 12, and 13, they realize whether they're, they've already outgrown mom and dad or whether they can keep looking up to mom and dad. Parents that don't grow in Christ deceive children and the kids get rebellious at 13 because they realize mom and dad don't live this at home. So the rebellion really is not their fault. It's the parents' fault. Your job is to always grow in Christ. Just because you're old in the church doesn't mean you're considered an aged man. Then he jumps to women. And notice there's only two genders. Likewise, that applies to everything we've just said, and we're going to add some stuff to it. That they be in behaviors becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. So let's stop in that verse. There's five traits of women, aged women, that is, mothers in the faith. Just because you're an old woman doesn't mean you're an aged mother in the faith. And every woman of God should aspire to be graduating to that mother in the faith where a church can call upon you as a church mama. And we ought to be able to use you for more than just teaching the young women how to cook a brisket. I mean, any, anybody ought to be able to cook a brisket so you don't starve to death. But can you, can you transfer character? Can you teach character and nobility and graciousness? Or are you still just Americanized and just been saved 40 years. So this five traits of age women, holy behavior, that means befitting a holy person, behavior that separates you from the world around you, behavior that separates you from the world around you. When you still look and dress like the worldliness around you, you're not an aged woman, even though you could be old. A good example is nose studs. That's a very secular thing. In North Africa, uh, North India, though, our friends of ours, the Ruchettas, uh, uh, she, uh, Ruchetta is the wife, um, Ruchetta, Miss Ruchetta, she's like fourth generation Christian in North India. She has a nose stud. But where she's from in North India, that's traditional, uh, seen traditionally as a, as a wedding ring. Now that's not how it's viewed here. I mean, and now uh, it's not enough to have a nose stud. Now you got to have both sides studded, then two or three hoops on a nostril, then the billy goat thing in the middle of your nose. And then I don't know, I can't keep track with it because I walk with God and I don't fly that low anymore. But I don't know if there's a difference between the bottom hoop and the upside down top hoop. I don't know. I got to figure it's meaning something. And it's almost like the darker we get, the more fishing tackle gets put in a nose. But where Ruchetta's from, a simple stud is the equivalent of their nose, of the wedding ring. 
And when they preached for us 10 years ago, and Pastor Brad, her husband, said, she can take it out. I understand it may be hard on Southerners. Just understand where we're from. It's her wedding ring. He said, she can take it out. It's difficult. I said, no, nah, I'll leave it in. It'll be good. Stretch some of my old white women. <laughs> What's up with always you old white women? Crusty, dusty, set in your ways. Pretty sure you're the only one making heaven. Got about as much joy as a rock. Except those will cry out one day and you won't. I don't bash black culture that hard. I mean, women are my biggest whipping post in here. Only because their husbands won't disciple them. Oh, oh, we're just setting them up, knocking them down. Let's reset those pins, which is a racist sport because it's a black ball going after white guys with rednecks. Racist, I tell you. Racist. Get 10 opportunities, knock down as many rednecks as possible. But honest to God, you know, if it was reversed, it'd be called racist. If it was a white ball knocking down black pins with rednecks. All right, let's move off of that because I had you back on my side ever so shortly making fun of white people. Not slanderers, not drunks. Those two in particular were notorious reputations of Cretan women. Now, I love it because I call this passage the Titus 2 woman. It's so profound in character, we kind of we lump it together with Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31 shows the woman of God's work ethic. And it just gets stronger and stronger, and there's no room for laziness in the woman of God's life. But this shows her characteristics, her character, her traits, her, her personality her morality. And you, you just have to know it's going to, they're going to have to be addressed. Women are addressed more in this passage than men are. And as I read it and realize what's the setting, the setting is Crete, the most wicked, wild west, debauched island nation in that time that Paul was dealing with. You know they're going to have to be aimed at. Good preaching aims at your sin. Good preaching aims at your attitude. So there was a Western I was, I'd watched years ago, and, and I went and found the clip on YouTube just to refresh my memory. And these, these cowboys pull up, and it's a mining town. And one of the cowboys asked the kind of guy walking around town, what kind of mining town? What you mining here? And they said, guano. And he said, guano? Yeah, bat poop. That's what you guys mine here. Yep, we mine bat poop, which is a real thing. You do mine that. It is, of course, bat poop is a real thing, and you do really mine it to get the nitrate out of it. And the other cowboy says, well, that beat all I ever heard. I've been to a gold town. He said, I've been to a silver town. I even been to a turquoise town. I ain't never been to a bat poop town. Can't wait to see what the women look like. <laughs> so I read this passage and I see the reputation of Crete. And I wonder what it did to the women. Because we know what America does to our women. It makes our women look just like 14-year-old boys. And it started with bra burning in the 60s, because who are you to tell me what to do? And I have fierce independence. And feminism became a gender declaration of independence. And we've taken it now 60 years into the future, and now we're teaching our children, our girls, to have double mastectomies to be equal to men. So a bat poop town, huh? Can't wait to see what the women look like. America, huh? Can't wait to see what the women look like. Well, you won't be able to find them because they look just like fat 14-year-old boys. So that's why this passage is so intense because if God himself doubles down and says, this witness is true, they are liars, they are evil beasts, and they are lazy gluttons, rebuke them sharply. It's not the will of God. And what does it keep doing to every generation? And every generation just gets worse and worse and worse. And this nation, our nation, and our preachers think we're going to love people out of this? The American way of loving? Oh, come here, give mama a hug. Oh, we're just so glad you're here with us this Sunday morning. Can I get a what, what for Jesus? Like, what, what, what? <laughs> Meet you in the bathroom, you limp-wristed preacher. Give you a what, what? <laughs> it is good preaching. We don't do bad preaching around here unless I'm absent and then we let somebody fill the pulpit. No, that's not true. That's a bad joke. 
So coming back to these women now. Holy behavior, not slanderers, not drunks. Teachers of what is good. That's an assignment given to every woman. And it should start in your own home. There's something in a God-ordained woman that just wants to recreate. Uh, you know, little girls get baby dolls and they, they just inevitably do school. They make school sets of baby dolls and Barbies and little... Uh, it's just in them to nurture and educate. It's in three-year-old little girls. It's not in men. We make toy guns and toy bombs and toy trucks and firefighters and cranes because and, it's, it's just in us. Remember, only two genders. Teachers of what is good because culture... He, God wants women to be culture changers, and it starts at home. He wants women to be culture changers, not culture followers. One of the biggest setbacks to our nation has not been just the feminist movement, but the social media movement of the last 15 years. Because now women, instead of being teachers and culture changers, now looked into a mirror of shallow feminine existence and wanted to become what they beheld, which has caused, among other things, uh, Botox and facial surgeries to spike in 20-year-olds. In 20-year-olds. 20-year-olds having facial work done to try to keep up with social media. And that's the most outwardly uh, observant change. But what about the middle-aged woman who now is trying to relive youthful lust and trying to keep up with the Joneses that you didn't even know were existing until all of a sudden you got on this little shallow device called social media? Change. God wants women to be culture changers, not culture followers, flexing influence at home and in private with the younger women that are drawn to you. By the same time, that means you've got to have something worth sharing and investing. Verse 4 says that they may teach. Now, verse 3 concludes by saying teachers of good things. Verse 4 says, now this is what I want you to teach. So, of course, that means if you don't have this working in your life, ladies... You can't replicate it in others. And honestly, the, the phrase in the Greek is different. It isn't just teach. It actually means to train. So now we add seven more traits. So between old women and young women, we have 12 characteristics given to them. That is an intense list of instruction that creates a very intense checklist for women to aim for, all because this damning culture of the Cretans, not because of their skin culture at all, quit being so shallow, and caught up in Marxism and social Marxism and identity politics. Had nothing to do with their skin color. Had everything to do with how they chose to live. That, that culture was ruining young women, making them wretched old women, and then perpetuating it to the next generation. So what are the things the young women are to be trained in by the older women? Must be trained how to love their husbands, which means young women don't have a clue. Young women don't have a clue how to love their husbands. Now, there's an emotion called love, but then there's an action and a biblical assignment called love, and it doesn't look like anything on social media or on One Tree Hill or 90210 or whatever junk, trash, soap operas out there now. Then he says the old women are to train the young women how to love children, which means you don't just know because you conceived the child, gave birth, and nursed it. That doesn't mean you know how to love that child. You have to be taught what love looks like, biblically. And then to be discreet, that is, self-controlled. Same word as with the old men. So here we have a third witness of needing self-control because one of the biggest issues in Crete was none, none self-control. To teach the young women how to be chaste or pure. You don't let a boy touch you until you're married. You don't touch a boy until you're married. You don't dress like you want a boy to touch you until your honeymoon night, and then that's between you and him. We don't have chastity anymore. We have social media, and we have worship teams. And the men's clothing is just as low-cut as the women's clothing, and the men's pants are just as tight as the women's pants. And I call skinny jeans eye candy for gays. Because all these dudes prancing around in their skinny jeans with their man bulge, there's going to be a couple of homosexuals in the congregation who've come to be delivered, but they're staring at the man bulge. And that's vile. 
both parts of that equation. I don't blame the homosexual for fighting in his desires. I blame the worship leader who's supposed to be mature and holy, following the whims of the world, wearing skinny jeans so that his junk bulges. Who's he trying to do that for? And if he would have some muscle on him, he wouldn't be able to wear those skinny jeans. But they're, they're, musicians are never athletic. It's like a prerequisite to be in marching band. God bless our musicians. Amen. Amen. God bless. I will say Kennedy's pretty muscular. That dude's pretty stout. All right. So he's the exception, and his physique is a little exceptional. He's pretty big. But we've all been through high school. We know American reputation. It doesn't mean it's even biblical, though, because even the priests in the Old Testament were men of valor, and I've not ever met a Catholic priest that was a man of valor. Or, honestly, not many preachers in that regard. I think it is sad that the, the typical, the stereotype of the American preacher is some fat guy with a bucket of chicken, greasy little continental shelf here, and soft hands. I, I, don't, I don't know why that's our reputation, but we need to change it. Keepers at home. You mean there are gender norms? Yeah. Because even the Fortune 500 lesbian who's married to another lesbian doesn't hire a man to keep her home. Because she knows he can't do it. Because he'll lose it. He'll lose it. He'll burn stuff. Clothes will come out pink. Lesbians don't wear pink. Wear a lot of earth tones. A lot of denim. You don't hire a dude to keep home because they can't do it. But women can't because God graced them. <laughs> this message will have so many like tags on YouTube. <laughs> Good thing there's a war going on in the Middle East to distract everybody. <laughs> Nobody can seem to decide who's the worst on their fight. Everybody seems to forget Israel did nothing but get attacked. And man, I mean, I don't want to get in it, but Hamas, you're going to come in with paragliders and you forget the other side has F-22 Raptors. You come in on a friggin' kite and a machine gun and you forget they have 600 Raptors. That's like jumping in the neighbor's pen with Rottweilers and pit bulls and kicking them. And then calling foul when they maul you to death. Keepers at home, we should move on. This one we won't be able to post on YouTube. Ew. We got to teach women how to be kind. King James says good. The word means kind. Can, you mean women can be unkind to their husbands? American women? You mean these lovely, lovely screech? I mean swans? You mean these liberated feminists? bra-burning, dyed-in-the-wool progressive. Who are you to tell me what to do? You got to teach them how to be kind to the man they claim they love? Amen. Yes. You have to teach them because human nature doesn't want it, especially in this culture. And then you got to teach them how to be obedient. There's a cuss word. Submissive to their own husbands. What's the reason for all this, Paul? That the word of God be not des desecrated or, uh, or, or blasphemed, maligned. Because if a woman calls herself a Christian but lives like Crete, the word of God is of none effect. The whole point of this chapter is that the word of God has come to change us. The word of God has come to change us. I love our nation, but the word of God does not want to make us American. It doesn't want to make us pro-Trump or pro-Democrat. The word of God wants to make us pro-God, pro-Jesus. The word of God wants to get us out of sin and attitude and fear and insecurity and insurrectionism and independence. This attitude, it wants to make us and bind us to Christ and make us the ultimate slave for our spouse and our children. And we might teach them how to glorify God. How about traits for young men? It's pretty summed up in one word, be sober-minded, which is the same word, be self-controlled, young men. And then he switches it up, it's Sophronio again, self-controlled, to govern all your passions including food, 
to govern all your passions, even your food passions. <laughs> you can ask somebody, what are you passionate about? Pizza? Hamburgers? Oh, ice cream. Really passionate about ice cream. What about politics? Is that a flavor? <laughs> Neapolitan. Is that Napoleon's ice cream? I'm pretty passionate about that. <laughs> All your passions. Video game passion, spending passions. You got to be governing all that. And then Paul mixes it up to Timothy. He says, uh, in all things, that the reference is now you, show yourself a pattern of good work so we can continue this with the young men. That is, young men, you, your lives have to be a pattern for others. An example of good works, the word there's tupon, and it, it means basically a pattern model. It literally means to be impressed with a die. Like when you die stamp something, die stamp leather, die cast metal. Our lifestyles are to be the die that others can model and pattern. That if we, if we interact, if I interact with Josh, my lifestyle makes an impression on him that he walks away with that mark. And the more time he spends with me, the more that affects him. It's almost like the Play-Doh cookie cutter where you roll it out and you drop it. And there's that form and everything else gets pulled away. That's supposed to be our lifestyle to everybody around us. But when you have no perimeter and you have no set metric and you have no trait, you have no pattern, you're just going to take on the amorphous form of the world with its ever-shifting standards. You're going to think hard preaching is meanie-weenie. And you're going to think any standard of Christ is really hate-filled. And you're going to look for some church that's going to blow smoke into your ear and help send you to hell encouraged. Well, I'll give you some encouragement. Do better. I'm encouraged you can. <laughs> Let me encourage you to do better. Because I know that you can. Be an example of good works. Oh, you mean I got to have some of that? Yep. And then our lives, as he says there, how about, okay, what kind of good works? In doctrine. So our lives should show what the gospel can and will do. What's the last thing the gospel changed in your life? It's a good question to ask. I'm not going to be able to finish this chapter tonight, but we'll, we'll bring it in here in a minute. What's the last thing the gospel changed in your life? And then what's, what's the last thing you rejected from God to stay like the world? Because the whole point of this passage, it's no, it's no excuse. It's no, it's no coincidence. Paul says, I left you in Crete. There's some things lacking. Ordain leaders because that nation's a mess. And full of Judaizers and heretics. And now this is the effect that your ministry should have. I wonder how many churches could look at their congregation and say, my old and young women look like this and my old and young men look like this. Or how many of them would be honest and say, my church looks like America. But boy, we got a big production. Whoa, whoa waka, waka, waka. <laughs> Those preachers are nothing but court jesters. Our lives should show what the gospel can and will do. We should be incorruptible in our teaching. He says to Timothy or uh, Titus, in doctrine, show uncorruptness. That's incorruptible doctrine, incorruptible teaching. A lot of preachers will fail this because they no longer teach the Holy Ghost. They no longer teach the doctrines they were given. They've backed away from righteousness. They've backed away from purity. They're backing away from the standard they were given that saw them to Calvary's cross. And they're lowering the standard, trying to be friends with everybody. And so they don't even qualify to be a young man in Paul's eyes. In their doctrine, uncorruptness, in, gra in doctrine, gravity. That means grave seriousness, reverential teaching, a dignity of delivery. We have a lot of preachers that honestly are just clown shows. They're just comedians. Uh, even how they dress is a clown show. When you watch some of these preachers and you're not sure, is this like, did Nike just drop some new shoes? Is this the new Nike fall collection? Like, is it flannel weekend? Did he just get a new platinum chain? When, when the first thing you see is a fashion show, we have an issue because it's not reverential pre presentation of the gospel. That reveals the insecurity of the man behind the pulpit. He wants to be known by the money he has and the clothes he's bought. If that's why you're up there, go away and stay on Instagram. The pulpit is not a place to draw attention to you. Grave delivery of the teaching of God's word. 
Dress up nice, yes. If you happen to come in an in-season out, you happen to be wearing a hoodie and your gym clothes, and they say, hey, can you preach? You're not there to show off your hoodie and your gym clothes. You happen to just be caught. Can, we, can you preach for us? Okay. But when that's what you intend to wear on Sunday morning service, there's an ego. Pastor Vaughn would have brought it out and called it youthful lust. Youthful lust produces youthful lust. Sincere teaching, he says, sincerity, and that means a pure motive. Why are we teaching the Word of God? Is it to get laughs? Is it to be liked? Or is it because we want to help people look like Jesus and see them free? Sound speech that cannot be condemned, uh, that is wholesome speech that cannot be judged as lacking, that he that is on the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you having no evil thing to say of you. There's a lot to unpack. I, I don't, I, we maybe can, let's finish this section here because it doesn't just say old men, old women, uh, old men, old women, young women, young men. Now it goes into, we even want to change the slave culture on Crete. Verse nine, exhort the servants, that's slaves. Not exactly the same kind of slavery we had in our nation 170 years ago, but slaves nonetheless. The gospel even changes the slave culture and the attitude of the slave. That's how deep cutting this gospel wants to change people. Not just the old men in the church, but those who are in church, but they are still a slave to somebody else. Servants be obedient to their own masters and to please them well in all things, not talking back, not pilfering. That could be easily applied to us on the job. Are you stealing erasers from your boss? Are you stealing pencils? That's pilfering. Purloining is the King James word. You're pilfering the time clock, having somebody punch in for you before you get there and then hang out a little bit extra just to make an extra 20 minutes. You're a liar and a thief. Yes, sir. Yep. Showing all good fidelity that the slaves may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Even the slave was commanded to glorify God in his bondage whether it was indentured servitude, whether he'd sold himself into slavery, whether he was a war slave, which was very common in the Roman Empire. We said a couple weeks ago, it is estimated that in this time, the Roman Empire was half enslaved. So if you're going to preach the gospel, you've got to address people where they're at. The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. We'll pause there. All men, slave and free alike. So hopefully you can see that this island nation of Crete, a lot like America, horrible reputation, greedy. Uh, the history books I've studied say they were known for their rapacious greed that was fed a lot by their attitudes, their lying, their conniving. Sounds like America. Uh, no self-control. Sounds like America. Lying a lot. That's America. Uh, but the gospel came and one man was left on this island nation to begin to change it. Now, Crete isn't known that way anymore. So something changed. But it does seem for all the gospel we were birthed on 300 years ago, we're rejecting it. And some Christians are fighting more and more to be like where they came from rather than fighting to be like where they're supposed to be going, which is heaven. We ought to be fighting to be like where we're headed, which is heaven. That's what we ought to be fighting. Not to look like the world. I don't want to look like the Video Music Awards. Uh, somebody showed me Doja Cat's new video. We watched the whole thing. Do not go watch it. It's all about a demon. It's actually dead on accurate. Uh, I mean, it, it, gave, it didn't give me the heebie-jeebies. I grieved the Spirit of God. I was watching it. The music being cranked out today, if the world loves it, there's a demon on it. I would even say that with worship music. I may have to find a picture of Doja Cat as this demon from this video just to show you the screen capture because it looks just like stuff I've seen. Crawling on the ceiling and Christina Ricci plays the victim in the video in her bed, paralyzed with fear as this thing crawls on the ceiling down to her. I was like, I've been there. Had demons do that same thing to me. And the whole video is bib uh, biblically accurate, but it's a demon. So we don't watch that stuff because we don't want to be like it. You will become what you behold. So change what you're looking at and you'll change who you are. Because I love my nation, but I don't want to be American. I'm glad to be American. It gives me a lot of favor. 
My real privilege is in that passport. That's my real privilege. And you have the same privilege I do. But I don't want to be known as an American. I want to be known as a believer in Jesus Christ. I want to be known as a believer in Jesus Christ of Nazareth. I want that to define me, not my passport. Father, thank you for helping us. We thank you for these intense lessons out of Titus. Different flavor than First and Second Timothy. Different assignment, different young preacher, different problems to be dealt with. A very carnal, very wretched society and culture as opposed to Timothy's Ephesian church, which was so mature, so polished, so poised, so cosmopolitan. We thank you, Father, for the reality that both churches need to be pastored. Both churches need pastors. Both churches need adjustment. But pastoring changes depending on who's being pastored. Thank you for helping us tonight to see these truths. Thank you, Father, for changing us. May we judge our own culture, where we come from, whether it's Africa or a, a, a Latin state, whether it's Europe, whether it's the South, whether it's Yankeeville, whether it's a denominational background or a charismatic background. May we judge what we've brought to the table today, and may we purify things through the blood of Christ and New Testament doctrine. Help us grow and mature in Christ. Help us glorify you, and may we be changed from glory to glory. In Jesus' name, amen.